Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm Jordan Schneider here today with Barry Eichengreen. He's the party professor of economics and a professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of some of my favorite books on international political economy: uh, "Globalizing Capital," which is a short volume on the history of the international economic system. Actually, first got me interested in these topics in the first place. But today we're not going to be talking about that classic. We're instead going to be going over his most recent book, "How Global Currencies Work: The Past, Present, and Future," which he co-authored with Livia Kitu and Arna. Mail. So, Barry, thanks so much, and welcome to the show. Thank you. So, before we jump into this book, I'm just curious what first got you interested in these sorts of topics in, in international political economy, macro in general. I think it's a really interesting area to work in if you are interested in the frontier between economics and politics, in the intersection of international economics and international politics. So, thinking about International currencies requires you to think not only about trade and finance, but also about geopolitics. So it was that combination of interests that kind of propelled me in this direction. Sure. So why write this book today? Why was the question of international currencies so pressing in your mind right now? Because people have trouble thinking about the roles of the dollar, the U.S. dollar, and the Chinese renminbi. In the international system, people don't know whether to consider them rivals or complements to one another. They don't fully understand whether there's a battle to the finish going on between the dollar and the renminbi. At the end of which, only one currency will remain standing, in the sense of playing an important international role, or whether several. National units, not only the dollar and the renminbi, but also the euro, for example, can coexist on、uh, the global stage and all play consequential roles in cross-border trade and finance. So it was that set of issues that we are trying to shed light on, trying to understand, using historical evidence, using economic theory, a little bit of economic theory, and. Sure. So one of the things you lay out in the beginning of your book is this sort of traditional view of how international currencies rise and fall, and basically there's kind of a big dog, and a new currency comes and takes its place. So if you could sort of walk through the traditional view, that would be fantastic. The traditional view is based partly on a superficial reading of the history, which goes: once upon a time, Great Britain was the leading. Global economy and the pound sterling was the leading currency used for international transactions around the world. After the pound sterling, after Great Britain and the pound sterling, it became the United States and the dollar. And in the future, it may be another country and another currency, China and the renminbi. That traditional view is also based partly on economic theory. A、uh, theory that emphasizes the importance of network effects when people choose to use a particular unit, a particular currency in their domestic and, and international transactions. And the story goes: the bigger the network, the more attractive that currency is. So at any point in time, everybody will see an advantage in gravitating toward using a particular unit, be it. The pound sterling in the 19th century, the dollar in 
20th or maybe the renminbi in the 21st, we look a little bit harder at the historical evidence and it turns out to look a bit different than the conventional story would suggest. And we look harder at the theory as well and conclude that it opens up other possibilities as well. So could you talk a little bit about this uh, new view you're espousing and the software analogy that you use to explain it? The analogy we use in the book is with uh, electronics. Think laptops, for example. Once upon a time, people argued that there was room in the world only for one operating system, and it would be Microsoft Windows or something like that. It was really hard to transfer data across platforms. So if you were anything other than a computer hobbyist, if you really needed to share data and files and information with colleagues or co-workers or fellow students, you had to use the same operating system, the same platform that they did, and the one that dominated because it had the biggest network at the outside was Windows. But over time, we learned how to transfer information between platforms. People who develop word processing programs develop translators that enable them to move uh, files between different word processing programs. So more generally now, a bunch of different platforms coexist. The one that Apple uses, the one that Microsoft uses, a variety of others. There is room in the technology space for several competing systems. And we argue in the book that finance is developing in a, in a similar way where people are learning how to, to move between quoting prices, settling transactions, comparing costs in different units so that in the modern 21st century world it, it's possible for the dollar and the euro and the renminbi all to play consequential international roles. So going back to history, you really in this book trace you know the past 125, 150 years of uh, relative currency influence. So let's start at the Fed's big bang and the big push to internationalize the dollar. So why was the Fed interested in making the dollar more of a global player and how did they go about doing that? Before the Fed, uh, which was created in 1913, the dollar didn't really play any international role when U.S. producers wanted to export their goods. They had to get trade credit from banks in London because only pounds sterling were widely accepted in settlement. When people wanted to sell bonds across borders, they were, those bonds were similarly denominated in pounds sterling or French francs, but almost never in dollars. The problem was that the United States didn't have deep, liquid, stable financial markets. The fact that all this business went abroad was not a happy situation from the point of view of U.S. banking. So some of the founders of the Fed were motivated by the desire to internationalize the dollar, just like Chinese policymakers, some of them anyway are interested today in renminbi internationalization. What did the Fed do to promote 
minor uh, international use of the dollar. It set up a market in trade credits, in a market in which lenders would provide credit to exporters and importers, uh, credit denominated in, in U.S. dollars. And then it acted as kind of a, a market maker of last resort. It provided liquidity to that market to ensure its stability. That was an important advance, and it coincided, as fate would have it, with the outbreak of World War I, which disrupted the provision of financial services by the City of London and created an opening for New York as a financial center and the Fed as a market maker. So one of the interesting findings in your book is the stickiness of the sterling post-World War II. The way I was taught this history was that basically 1945 led to the end of the sterling, but the fade was much slower. Could you explain why that was so and what the implications of that are when thinking about the 21st century? One of the important findings of the book, which we document at great length, is that the pound sterling and the U.S. dollar played comparable roles. They pretty much split international markets 50-50, half and half between them in the 1920s and 1930s. So the U.S. was the rapidly growing country. Normally, you would expect the dollar to capture a growing share of the international market. But the U.S. was also relatively unstable. We had banking crisis in the United States in 1930, 1931, and 1933. So that made people hedge their bets diversify their financial business between New York and, and London. That situation persisted through the end of, uh, of the 1930s. After World War II, the United Kingdom emerged from the war greatly weakened financially and economically, but it had uh, Commonwealth countries, residual parts of the British Empire, which had absorbed large numbers uh, of pounds sterling in the course of the war and only liquidated them very gradually thereafter. So it was really only in 1967 with the third big devaluation of the pound sterling that sterling's international role came to an end. Great. Turning a little forward to the 1980s, if you could talk, uh, the 70s and 80s, if you could talk a little bit about the story of the yen and how and why its internationalization happened a lot slower than its growth in global share of GDP, what pushed policymakers to change, and why they ended up failing in their internationalization attempts. It's really interesting for people thinking about China today to look back at Japan in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, when it was the so-called miracle economy growing at near double-digit rates. Japanese policymakers were reluctant to internationalize the yen because they used a system of directed credit to try to force feed credit to manufacturing. Eventually, come the 1980s, they did want to begin to internationalize the yen because they understood the Japanese economy then, like the Chinese economy now, needed to be rebalanced away from heavy industry toward financial services, among other things. But I think they, when they eventually began liberalizing their financial markets, they moved too fast. 
and they experienced a real estate bubble, a banking crisis, and then a deflationary slump. So when you have a banking crisis, an economy that doesn't grow, people are not going to be adopting the currency. The yen really reached its apex, its high point, as an international currency. Already in 1989, 1990, on the, the eve of the, uh, the Japanese banking crisis, the lesson for China is pretty obvious. Currency internationalization is good, but you need to maintain financial stability in order to succeed. So turning now to the RMB internationalization story, first, if you could just recount the recent history, as well as the motivations of Chinese policymakers, like why they would want to have the RMB play a larger global role. I think Chinese policymakers have several motivations, and which one is most important depends on which Chinese policymaker you're talking about. They understand that uh, wider global use of the renminbi will be good for the ability of Chinese banks and firms to do business internationally. The renminbi is their home currency, their home birth, their natural habitat. For some Chinese policymakers, renminbi internationalization is a bit of a prestige project. Just like a first-class country should have an aircraft carrier, it should have a currency that is used globally. And some Chinese policymakers see renminbi internationalization as a way of forcing the pace of financial reform. If you want to internationalize your currency, you have to relax restrictions on cross-border capital flows. You have to relax the country's system of capital controls, at which point you will get a larger volume of financial flows in and out of the country. But to make those sustainable and ensure the stability of your domestic financial markets and, and institutions in the face of those flows, you've got to strengthen supervision and regulation and management of the banks the shadow banks and the capital markets. So for people who think strengthening supervision and regulation and liberalizing and commercializing the Chinese financial sector is urgent and imperative, renminbi internationalization is a way of ratcheting up the pressure to move quickly. So I think different Chinese policymakers have different motivations. They came together in 2015, 2016, to give the process of renminbi internationalization a lot of momentum. So what concrete steps have already been taken and what are the crucial ones that China will need to push in order to make this investment and use more attractive for foreign players? To date, the important things that have been done are, number one, some relaxation of regulations limiting the flow of finance in and out of the country. Number two, the negotiation of renminbi credits or swap lines with foreign central banks around the world. So the Bank of England, to take an example, will only let UK banks do business in renminbi bonds if it can act as a renminbi lender of last resort if those UK banks get into trouble. 
because the Bank of England has a currency swap line with the People's Bank of China, the Bank of England can get its, its hands on renminbi at times it needs to be able to pass them on to UK banks. And in addition, the Chinese government has designated one of the big five Chinese banks as the official renminbi clearing bank, the bank that will settle renminbi transactions for each of the major foreign financial centers from Seoul to Frankfurt to Toronto. All of that has been, have been important steps and what they have resulted in is increased use of the currency for settling important export trade, merchandise trade between China and other countries. Also to a lesser extent among trade among third countries not involving China itself. Where these efforts have been less successful on the other hand is in encouraging use of the currency for international financial transactions. Investors are still reluctant to hold a large fraction of their financial portfolios in Shanghai in the form of renminbi-denominated deposits and securities because they have doubts about the stability of Chinese financial markets, about the liquidity of those financial markets. So that's where the heavy lifting yet to come is located. Sure. So one of the questions you take on is the question of authoritarianism and whether or not a country that doesn't have a, an open and free society can really be one that creditors trust to live up to their commitments. So could you take that question on a little bit? This is obviously a delicate question in China. When I visit and I'm asked to talk about this subject and, and to reflect on renminbi internationalization, I start with the observation that Every currency that has played an important international role in the last 800 years has been the currency of a political democracy or republic, starting with the Republican city-states of Genoa, Venice, and Florence, extending through the Dutch Republic in the 17th and 18th century, including England in the 19th, including the United States in the 20th. I argue, we argue in the book, that this is not a coincidence, that investors are concerned to see checks and balances on the arbitrary application of power by the executive before they're prepared to park a large share of their wealth in that country's currency. So it, it does suggest to me that China will have to move further in the direction of rule of law, further in the direction of a, a system of checks and balances where power is distributed between the Politburo, the People's Congress, civil society, uh, non-governmental organizations, including representatives of investors before this process of renminbi internationalization can be completely successful. Sure. So on the other side of the Pacific, you recently wrote a piece about Trump's international policy and how that's possibly begun to undermine the role of the dollar in the international system. Right. 
right, so one of the things that we show in the book is that there has always been historically an important connection between geopolitics, geopolitical alliances on the one hand, and international currency use on the other. One way to think about this is to observe that U.S. allies that rely on the United States for their security umbrella typically hold a larger share of their foreign currency reserves in dollars than other countries. Uh, Japan holds a larger share than you would otherwise expect. South Korea holds a larger share than you would otherwise uh, expect. But countries with their own nuclear deterrent, the UK or France, conversely, hold a smaller share than you would expect. One of the things we do in the book is to look at the growth of defense military alliances before World War I when these proliferated in Europe and show how they're reflected in the pattern of reserve holdings that countries that were allied with Britain hold held sterling, countries that were allied with France held francs, countries that were allied with Germany held marks. So I'm concerned about Mr. Trump's foreign policy intentions for many reasons. I think uh, they potentially pose a threat to global security on a broader scale, but they also have implications for the dollar's international use. If the United States does withdraw from the global stage and turn inward, adopting an America first and America only policy, it will come to be viewed as an unreliable guarantor of the security of other countries. Those countries will turn to other potential allies for security alliances, and they will correspondingly change uh, whose money they use when doing business internationally. So I do think that this isolationist turn in American foreign policy and trade policy could potentially threaten the dollar's international role going forward. Sure. So it's interesting to think about that from the Chinese perspective. I mean, Chinese, you know, whoever you would call their allies aren't necessarily the most deep pocketed countries, though. Richard McGregor recently wrote a book uh, talking about the kind of latent fear of U.S. policymakers for the past 30 years or so of South Korea, Japan and China deciding that, you know, a more Asian focused uh, policy kind of leaving the U.S. to a side could really tip the balance from a lot of different perspectives. So just for a final question, if your thesis turns out to be true, what would it mean for the world if we end up seeing an international financial system dominated by the use of multiple currencies? What are the risks and opportunities inherent in that sort of system? The good news is that we would probably have a more reliable source of international liquidity. If you're going to be doing business across borders, and that's what we do, in the era of 21st century globalization. You need credit that's widely accepted by 200 countries around the world. We're no longer in an age where the United States can be relied on to provide that all on its own. So if there are multiple potential sources of that liquidity, not only the US and the Euro area, but potentially China, India, Brazil, that will kind of provide 
the assurance that we will have the liquidity that 21st century globalization will require. On the other hand, the bad news is that if there are multiple liquid national financial markets, it's easier to exit one, run away from one, because there's an alternative in response to bad news. So there could be a stock market crash in one of these countries that caused all the investors there to get up and move their assets to another one. That could lead to a situation where exchange rates become highly volatile and volatile and unstable. That would be the worry. Great. All right. Well, uh, Big questions to ponder. Barry, thanks so much for your time. Where can people find you and what's next up on your plate? People can find me here at the University of California, Berkeley. They can find me on Twitter. They can find my book on Amazon, but also coming in Simplified Chinese Translation early next year. Next up on my plate is a short volume about the history of populism. And you can guess the kind of uh, recent events that motivated me to do that. Great. All right. Well, hope to have you back on for that. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. <laughs> 